This is God's word. Amen? Amen. Now, I should say, in my translation, I don't ever remember hearing one, two, three before they threw Jonah in. (laughs) I was paying attention. For those that are visiting, we've been in Jonah for the last two and a half months, and we finished it up last week and thought this is a great way to kind of do a conclusion, an epilogue, so to speak. When you hear the whole story and it's acted out that way, uh, I'm just curious, can anybody remember all the points of all the messages in the last two and a half months? <laughs> no, I can't even do that. But why don't we respond this morning the way we talked about at the very beginning. One of the traditions in the Jewish culture is that after they read the book of Jonah, they in unison would say, we are Jonah. Why don't we say that? We are Jonah. Now, the reason I say it is because last week we talked about the cliffhanger. And one of the possible reasons why I briefly mentioned is that we get to write the ending of our own story. I mean, we all have our own stories, and we have our callings, and we have our Ninevehs, and we get angry at God, at others, at ourselves. And what makes Jonah unique, it's not about his prophecies. It's really a story about him, which means it's a story about us. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to put a slide up. We're going to kind of look at three things in closing. Uh, This comes from Tim Keller's book called The Prodigal Prophet. He wrote a newer version of it. It's called Rediscovering Jonah. But at the very end, he says, listen, the book of Jonah is about three things. One is our relationship to God's word. Two, our relationship to God's world. And three, our relationship to God's grace. So I'm curious, would anybody like Tim Keller's book? Jonah, right there? Okay. Remember the rules? Yes. You read it and pass it on. Ah, oh, she missed. Good catch. <laughs> um, let's look about our relationship to God's world. word. From the very beginning, Jonah was running away from the word of the Lord. And isn't it true that we love to run and we love to hide like Adam and Eve in the garden. We love to isolate. Have you ever noticed that when we start believing lies, we do what? We pull back, we avoid, we stay away. We love to recreate our own stories. And that's what we do in isolation. We start rewriting everything to suit our thoughts and our desires and other people in part. It's why they say, and this is from a sociologist standpoint, They say social media is so tempting because we can create an image that people see without ever knowing who we really are. And that is innate in the human soul. The crazy thing is the psalmist says what? Where can I go that you're not there? So what aspects of God's word do you run from? I want you to think about right now What you and and slash we, because yes, we can run as individuals, but we can run as a church, can't we? You know, GBC can sit there and say, oh, we're not going to do that. We're just going to avoid it. We're going to stay away. So what aspects of God's word are you running from? Are we running from right now? What aspects are you saying, you know, this part, yeah, I, I believe in, but this part doesn't really matter that much. And so we ignore it. We pretend it's not there. 
We say they didn't get it right. You know, one of the things hitting the Christian church in America today is called progressive theology. And progressive theology is this, where they say, well, there's the Old Testament. We don't do that anymore, so that's no good. There's the New Testament of Jesus, and if Jesus were alive today, here's how he would be. Now, you see the danger of that? We get to make Jesus anything we want him to be. And we avoid the truth of what we know in God's word. Now, why we run is because we're arrogant. It's the height of arrogance. We're taking control of our lives. That's what arrogance is. We say, God, I know more than you do. I'm taking control. Just stay out of my way. See, we know better than God does. And we see that in the book of Jonah, don't we? Where he ran to Tarshish. He ran to get away because God didn't understand what he was asking him to do. Now, how we run, back in Genesis 3, we we say things like, well, did God really say this? And we change the truth to suit our perspectives. And you know the old adage, if you repeat a lie long enough, you'll believe that it's the truth. And what do we run to? Well, that's really the height of selfishness. Why is the height of arrogance? What, too, is the height of selfishness? Because we run to our desires, not his. We run to our wisdom, not his. And we have to take an honest look at our relationship to God's word. I mean, that is one of the principal truths in the book of Jonah. Now, let's look at our relationship to God's world. Now, this is a double-edged sword. Part of it is we see the beauty, the wonder, the creation. We, we see this world as God sees it. This past summer, my wife and I had the privilege to ride on Motorcycle Glacier National Park. And if you've ever been there, it is absolutely stunning. A little scary when you're riding up the road to Logan's Gap because it's about a 2,000-foot fall off if you kind of miss the road. And you get to see all that in the motorcycle. But it is just beauty to sit back and watch how God created this world. The other side is we also see the darkness and the evil and the horror of our inhumanity to one another. I mean, when you read scripture, you have the book of Judges. I remember preaching through scripture one time and people kept asking, why is the book of Judges there? It's dark. It's unthinkable. The evil that exists in those pages is horrible. They said, I don't even want to read that to my kids. And yet the New Testament says that all scripture is profitable. So why is it there? Well, there's a key phrase in the book of Judges, and it's said two times, one towards the beginning and one at the end, and it says this, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the book of Judges is about what happens to a culture when everyone does what they think is right and what they feel is right. And it's an absolutely horrible, dark story. But this question really is the question of who is my neighbor? And of course, God's answer is everybody we run into. You know, I like what um, the person introducing piercing word this morning said, listen, you're here, you're here for a reason. That is not an accident. You know, God appoints a plant. God appoints a worm. God appointed a scorching wind. He appointed the sun. You know, God's answer is it's not a condition of 
whether or not we like them or not. They're still our neighbors. That's why he says, love your enemies. And in this story, Nineveh was a fierce and violent and cruel enemy. But we realize, according to God's word, there is evil. And without God, our inhumanity to each other simply escalates. It's really why the church exists. Because we are the salt and we are the light. We come in and instead of evil, we bring light. And holiness is something that's attainable. But take a short lesson of history. You can look at things like the Holocaust or the Rwanda massacre. The list goes on and on. And, and even look at our own contribution in America. We somehow think that we're not quite as evil as everybody else. Uh, just simply look at abortion and what that has done to our culture. And I don't know about you, but I love it today when people say, well, just follow the science. And the evidence is so clear. Life without God, we develop into a very cruel people. But then we have the reaction or the response of the church. Have you ever noticed when we face evil, what do we do? Well, I think in churches sometimes we hide. And we hide in our churches, we hide in our programs, we hide in our homeschools. We say we want to set ourselves apart from so we don't have to think or see that. So we avoid. We don't want to look evil in the face. I mean, who does? I mean, I don't wake up in the morning saying, hey, bring evil on. I love saying it. No, it breaks our hearts. But it's why the church is here. We are the hope of the world. And we isolate like Jonah did. We sit outside watching from our viewpoint. And tragically, in our day to day, we sit outside and we wait for Jesus to come. Say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Rather than engaging, walking through the streets of Nineveh. Now look at trends in our culture and trends in Christianity. You know, I put a few questions down like this. How do we come alongside of other believers in their churches and ministries who, do not, who didn't come through this whole COVID pandemic? I mean, there's a lot of churches, about 20% estimated, that are struggling and will probably close. I mean, how do we come alongside fellow believers that are here to be salt and light? What about escalating need for compassion ministries? If you didn't know this, I'm going to inform you this morning. Don't be shocked. But the government will not solve this crisis. <laughs> as inflation hits, as price of rent, I, I heard one story this past week where a lady's rent went up $800. Heating, food, they're all going to continue to rise. And there's going to be a whole lot of hurt. So how do we raise the bar in terms of, you know, what I call biblical compassion ministries? How do we help people who do not have the means? And others, how do we help them live within their means when we live in a culture that bleeds debt? We just keep borrowing and borrowing and saying the next generation will pay for it. I mean, how do we become Christ in a culture where everything today is political? Where you're either a victim or you're entitled. Where you live at the expense of future generations and you don't think about your kids and your grandkids, and now they say our debt's going to be passed on to our great-grandkids. How do we live for Christ and with Christ and in Christ 
What's our relationship to God's world? I mean, this is a world he created. And this is a world he's going to redeem someday. And this is a world that we will live in forever and ever. Now, it's totally redone, just like our bodies, which we can give a hearty amen, can't we? <laughs> Leadership board the other night, just this past Monday night, just began a brief conversation asking some critical questions about how GBC moves into God's preferred future. And you get that last phrase. It's not our preferred future for this church. It's God's preferred future. What shifts do we have to make in staff? And what shifts do we have to make in budget? I mean, God does say go into all the world. We got to go into Nineveh. And we have to engage. What does that mean? Now, of course, we have the promises. I'll be with you. I will give you the wisdom necessary. I will give you the strength necessary. He talks about all that kind of stuff. But somewhere we have to step out and we have to engage. We're starting that conversation at our leadership board level. So pray for us. And we'd love to hear your conversation into that as well. So let's look at the third, our relationship to God's grace. Now, if you haven't noticed lately, we live in a very angry world. Uh, you can see it just by how people drive anymore. But we are angry over everything. And inside our churches, I get a chance to consult some churches Christians are angry at each other. And it's why there's disunity. And, and they fight, they fight almost over anything and everything. When they do that, the church loses its mission. And that's tragic. You know, Satan doesn't care what we fight over. Satan doesn't care what we're angry at, just so it takes away our soul. And that's what anger does. Because when we are angry, we don't live out the supernatural love and grace and justice of God. And we become like Jonah, and we get angry over little things like plants and sun and wind. When God says there's 120,000 people, little kids, that you want me to destroy because you want your creature comforts. See, our anger causes us to react and do some rather stupid things. Remember what I said a few weeks ago? All of us are one choice away from stupid. I mean, it's just that simple. Now, here's an example. And think about the whole contradictory nature of this. Our world has adopted a human perspective, and churches have too on justice. And we hear justice everywhere today. And it's interesting that no matter what happens with justice, it only makes us more angry. And no matter what happens, some group's going to burn down buildings and destroy property and lives and make accusations and blame everyone else. And people are guilty and have to prove themselves innocent. And if they do prove themselves innocent, it doesn't matter. They're still guilty because they didn't get it right. It no longer matters what God thinks. We follow our version of justice. Now, I don't, I'm not going to get into what you think about what happened this past week, but take Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, the kid that was on trial and the verdict. And since then, there has been riots. There has been buildings and businesses burned down. There's been people hurt and injured, all in the name of justice. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at that and say, that's crazy. 
How can we do the very thing that we're claiming somebody else did? But we do it, it's okay, because we have the right to be angry. Now, people need, you know what people need? People need relief from their anger. People learn, have to learn how to deal with their anger. And that's going to take a safe place. It's going to take a place where we honor, we respect people, that's all of us, who are made in the image of God. And we're going to have to learn what civility means, that we can sit down and talk about our differences, that we can learn from each other, and we can take away, I'm going to say it this way, we don't have to be political in here. we got to be Jesus, amen? amen? We need to be a place where grace is not only talked about but lived out. And this only happens when God and in community we become a gracious people. So you see that our relationship to God's grace is directly impact our relationship to God's world and it's directly impacted by our relationship to God's word. If we don't get the word right, we're not going to get the world and the grace right. Let me give an example. My generation knows the story about Corrie Ten Boom. Maybe you're not familiar, but she was a survivor of the Holocaust. And she... And many of her family, she made it out, but a lot of her family didn't. But she was a Christian, and so she would go on tour, and she wrote books, and she would talk about grace and forgiveness. And she writes in her one story where after she was speaking about grace and forgiveness, a man came up to her afterwards, and he was a German. And he spoke to her saying he was moved by her talk and forgiveness, and he went on to confess that he was part of a very specific camp where her sister died. She said at that moment, all the emotions, all the horror, all the anger, all the fear flooded her as she looked into the eyes of her tormentor. He reached out his hand and said, I want to ask for your forgiveness. Now, she said at that moment, she knew that she had only spoken about forgiveness all these years, and now she's face-to-face with the evil that destroyed so many of her people and even her family. And she writes that she mechanically raised her hand to accept his, not willingly, but once she grasped his hand, she was flooded with the grace of God and his forgiveness unlike anything she had ever experienced. So you see, sometimes we got to be like Jonah where we don't want to go, but we go anyway. And God did an incredible revival in the city of Nineveh. But what did Jonah do? He still stayed in his angry, selfish, arrogant state and said, I don't like this. You know, we sang this morning, uh, open up the heavens. You know, we want to see. I'm curious if we really do. If God would open up the heavens at at GBC and if he'd open up in our community, I mean, what would we do with a bunch of people that don't know how to repent and they put sack and ash cloth on their animals? I mean, how would we handle people that we really don't want to be part of us? They come to us and ask for forgiveness. How do we handle people that may have done evil to us? 
So we sang that song. I just pray that we mean that song, that we want him to open up the heavens. We want grace poured out. We want to see Jesus. So what are your next steps? I just want you to listen to these steps, okay? I'm going to read them very quickly. Just want you to kind of take them in, and then I'll briefly talk about them afterwards. Um, here's what we do. Here's some action steps. First, we admit that we're powerless, that our lives have become unmanageable. Two, we come to believe in God whose power is greater than ourselves and can restore us to sanity. Three, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Four, we make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Next, we admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Next, we entirely, we entirely are ready to have God remove all those defects of character. And we call that holiness. Next, we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Next, we make a list of all persons who harmed us, who we had harmed. Read that wrong. And become willing to make amends to them. Next, we make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except to do so when injure them or others. Next, we continue to take personal inventory when we are wrong. Promptly admitting it. See, we don't wait a few days. We do it right there. Through prayer and meditation, we improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And lastly, having had and continue to have a spiritual awakening, we carry this message to everyone and practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, if you heard some people whispering when I was reading, it's because those are the 12 steps of recovery for those in addiction. And they work. And I think they're great 12 steps for all of us. When you look at it, it's a great way to deal with sin and evil. It's a great way to deal with our relationship with God and his word, God in this world, and God in his grace. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close with a song. I hope these last two and a half months, you've learned something. Not only about Jonah. See, that's the good Christian thing to do. Well, all these things we learned about Jonah. I hope you learn things about you. And you learn to apply those and take those to heart. And pray that God would completely revive this evil world that we live in. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are and what you do in us. I think about Thanksgiving coming up. May we truly be thankful as the choir sang so powerfully. I think of the Christmas season coming to us, and there's just so many things that distract us. Help us to keep our eyes on who you are and what we have in you. And that alone is something we should celebrate far beyond anything because we cannot attain that. Lord, keep us from running away. Keep us out of the belly of the fishes and keep us from sulking underneath our plants because things didn't go our way. But help us to roll with what you're doing in this world. Help us to see that. Help us to embrace that. And help us to celebrate the beauty of what you do in people's lives. 
We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand as we worship.